there. Thank you for connecting with me and subscribing to the Living the Sky Life podcast. I hope that the content of each episode brings you hope, connection, and some valuable takeaways. The Special Needs Parenting Village is large, so you should never feel like you have to travel this journey alone. Please connect with me through my website, Facebook page, or Instagram account, and let's keep this conversation going after each episode airs. If you are enjoying the podcast and are listening on Apple iTunes, please leave a rating and review or share Living the Sky Life with others. Thanks again for tuning in to Season 2 of Living the Sky Life. Welcome back to Living the Sky Life. Today's guest is Leah McCabe. Leah has a master's in specialized human factors psychology and is a user experience researcher by trade. Inspired by her autistic children, Leah and her husband founded Autism Wish, a charity initiative granting wishes to children on the spectrum. Both neurodiverse themselves, the McCabe's also launched the Embracing Autism podcast to provide parents of autistic children with tips, guidance, resources, and a newfound perspective. Leah's life's passion is to destigmatize autism while spreading awareness and compassionate acceptance. So please enjoy my conversation with Leah. So welcome back to Living the Sky Life. My guest today is Leah McCabe. I'm so excited to talk to you, Leah. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, um, there's a lot of things to talk about, um, but I first want to talk about your um, your journey with your two young daughters who are ages two and three. Um, and you had mentioned to me before that you noticed significant motor and communication delays um, and that your oldest was diagnosed with autism at 20 months. So what kinds of things specifically, I guess, were you seeing with the delays? So each of them had their own unique backgrounds. It's kind of interesting because they are both diagnosed as autistic, but they are kind of completely different parts of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. So my eldest one, what I noticed instantly with her was that she had that regression, that speech regression that hit around that like 17 month mark. So she used to say like mama and papa, and she used to blow kisses And then all of a sudden she lost those skills and she was no longer able to communicate with us in any way verbally. And she wasn't using any sort of like gestural conversation either. So that started to kind of pick up some red flags there because we put her in that infants and toddlers evaluation and they noticed that she was um, basically delayed in speech. And so we didn't have any clue about autism at that time yet. We were just evaluating for speech And then it was through that evaluation that we uncovered more things with our other daughter, though, it was kind of, it was different because with our first kid, she had learned skills and then had lost them. And that was what kind of threw us off. But our second kid, the issue with her was that she actually never learned the skills. So she just never learned to say like mama and papa. She just was basically mute at the time. And so we were told that because we're a bilingual family, we were told that, oh, you know, it might just be a delay because you're trying to teach two languages. So we, we stopped teaching two languages and focused on one. And we noticed that they still weren't kind of keeping up. Um, Mm -hmm. So those were like the initial red flags that we saw. Well, and you had mentioned to me prior that um, you also are neurodiverse. Um, Is, is Mm -hmm. autism in your, um, 
I, I guess your neurodiversity or is it um, something else? I just asked yeah. that because I wondered if you noticed something um, at an earlier age with your daughters that most of us probably wouldn't have caught on to. 20 months is so young. I mean, I, I don't think I would have thought autism at 20 months for Skylar, even though he was clearly on the spectrum because I didn't know enough about it. Mm-hmm. So did any of that kind of help you to notice the delays quicker? Yeah. So I, I have diagnosed, like I have ADHD, for example, and I have some other, um, uh, neurodiversity type things. Um, Mm -hmm. I've been kind of flagged for BAP by my children's physicians, interestingly (laughs) enough. Um, and so I, I, the problem for me is that when you're around a lot of neurodiversity, like you actually think that that stuff is normal. So it's actually gotcha. harder sometimes to see the red flags because yeah. you're used to it. <laughs> so yeah, I'm used to people, I'm used to people having sensory issues. I have sensory issues. I like, I'm used to all that stuff. So it was a little more difficult initially. It was really the, um, the input from the speech pathologist that mm-hmm. started making me like think, oh, maybe there's more to it. It was the speech aspect that really got it for me. Gotcha. Well, that makes sense. Um, I, I mean, I, I never thought about it from that perspective that that kind of would be <laughs> your, more your quote unquote normal surroundings. So um, especially, it sounds like your daughter, your oldest daughter, especially turned um or was speaking at an earlier age than um, maybe a lot of her peers. She had quite a vocabulary at 17 months. Um, I don't know if that's Mm -hmm. pretty much the norm or um, if that seems early, but. Right. So my, my oldest child, she's actually the, I would say the type of autistic who has those like splinter skills. So Mm -hmm. she's always been very advanced. Like she is three now, but she taught herself to read at two. So now she's three and she's reading basically between five to seven year old level reading material. So it was always a little strange with her because I couldn't quite pin down what was going on because her developmental levels were never at where they should be either, Mm -hmm. either they were very advanced or they're very delayed. It was kind of rare to have anything that was like age appropriate. Gotcha. So for, um, I guess when you notice the regression and talk to the speech therapist, were there other things in addition to speech that you had to work on with her, um, or Mm -hmm. was speech pretty much the focus, the main focus to try to get some of that language back? Oh, speech was definitely a main focus, but with my eldest one, we actually were really concerned because she also had a lot of difficulty, like with physical delays. So for example, she never crawled ever. She never learned to crawl. And when I was trying to help her out crawling, I would push her legs into kind of a crawling position and her legs would just kind of give away into kind Mm -hmm. of like a frog leg type of position. So I went and got her checked out and it turned out that she had hypotonia, Mm -hmm. which is low muscle tone and very common in autism. So because of that, we actually ended up having to put her in physical therapy um, because she also had a lot of issues with body spatial awareness and she had low muscle tone that also contributed to feeding issues. So she had to go into feeding therapy. So there was a lot of aspects that the low muscle tone alone touched on and affected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she sounds like exactly like Skylar. He never crawled either. <laughs> he was extremely hypotonic, floppy baby for a long time. He still has motor issues, even at 18. Um, 
it's why our communication devices and different things that we've tried over the years have been so challenging for him because even just extending your finger to point and focus your eyes and lift your arm and do all of that stuff together is, is hard. It's, it's exhausting for him. Um, so it's, it's kind of nice that she can read books and that she, you know, can kind of coordinate all of those things coming from significant motor delay that she had. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Cause like when it comes to those things, she's pretty good at it, but when it comes to like gross motor skills, she's still very delayed there. And she, she's also been, um, kind of diagnosed with having the motor planning issues as mm-hmm. well, the motor delays. So she's actually behind my two-year-old in some of these things. Um, like I had to get her a special push bicycle because she at three was still struggling to just do that basic push cart that you give to like babies where they just push with their feet. She Mm -hmm. still couldn't do the motor planning on that, let alone anything like a tricycle. Gotcha. Well, having, so is your two-year-old in therapies also? Yes, they both are. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, <laughs> as you know, um, and a lot of parents experience, there's such a financial and just overall um, burden of trying to find the resources and then trying to pay for the resources um, that our kids need. And we're all willing to throw at them any single thing we can find, um, but it's not always easy to do. So I would imagine that is um the reason behind you and your husband starting Autism Wish, and I would love to hear all about that and how that kind of came to be. Absolutely. So, so you're absolutely true. We actually did a calculation, and in order to keep our kids into the medical school that they're in, it actually would cost us sixty thousand dollars out of pocket after insurance when we were on one insurance policy. So Mm -hmm. we ended up having to take out two insurance policies to get that number down because it was just, it's, it's ridiculous. And I know that the average, um, the average amount that people, parents of autistic children spend is $60,000 a year on medical care and equipment. So when we saw that essentially there's this huge need and the inability to fill that need, we, we thought we might do something about it because our local state has grants available, but they're on a lottery system. So it's very hard to get and mm-hmm. any sort of government assistance. There's like a minimum above a year wait list. And usually it's way more like I think our autism waiver wait list here is 12 years. Um, so it's kind of not even worth getting on that list. Um, So we decided that we needed to make it easier for parents to get practical help. So we created Autism Wish, and that was essentially a way to bridge the gap. So what we did is we made it easier and removed all the barriers by basically just telling parents, here, create an Amazon wish list of sensory and therapeutic items, and we'll do the work of finding sponsors and pairing you with sponsors to grant your child those items. And so like last Christmas, we did a Christmas drive where we were able to give um, over 113 kids gifted for Christmas with sensory and therapeutic items. Oh, I love that. Well, I noticed on your website, um, the Autism Wish website, that people can click to either donate, to grant a wish for someone, um, or make their own wish. So how is it that people start? I guess let's go down the list. So obviously, if someone wants to donate, they can just click on that. And then do they link up um, a payment? Or how does, how does each of those categories work? So I, I decided to create a bunch of different ways to do it, just depending on who is interested, because some people like to just donate 
a lump sum. And so I created a way for them to be able to just donate a lump sum. Um, but some people like to get really personal and get to know the kid that they're donating to. So I do get the kid's um, first name and I ask the parents for a little bio of the child their interests, their needs, that sort of thing. And there's some people who come up and they say, I want to sponsor a kid directly. So I will connect them to that kid's wish list and I will give them that, that kid's name and their biography to kind of humanize them. And I pair them up that way as well. So there's different ways. And then I also do corporate sponsorship tiers, um, but there's basically a bunch of different ways to do it. And when did you guys start this page? Um, so Autism Wish was started probably about a year and a half going on two years. Okay. Kind of during the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. We did it during, we absolutely <laughs> did it during the pandemic because when you're people locked in, home. we noticed, <laughs> yeah, people are at home and our kids um, experienced a lot of regression during the mm -hmm. pandemic because yep. of that change of routine. And I was checking online and there was a lot of parents complaining of the same thing of all the regression. And the biggest impact that we had was that a significant amount, if not all of our therapies were canceled. And I mean, this is for like months in a row of no therapies. Mm -hmm. And because of that, you get the regression combined with the lack of therapy and no way to handle it. So we wanted to give um, people an easier way to be able to kind of recreate therapy at home by being able to get some occupational therapy toys or sensory room type of equipment and things like that. And so if people want to um, create their own list, um, is what you said that they should go to Amazon and create a wish list, or should they reach out to you first um, and get like proper instructions to make sure they're doing it correctly? and then um, right. create that wish list, and then you would upload it for them? So what I have on my website, if you go to autismwish.org, there is a make a wish section. So when you click on there, it gives you all the instructions. Um, applications are going to be opening soon for the Christmas season. Um, but as soon as applications are open, a button appears there where you can go ahead and submit your application. It's basically a form that you fill out. And there's also directions on how to set up your Amazon wish list because you got to make sure you have your shipping information. And I also ask parents to justify the needs um, just to make sure that, you know, we are getting these kids what they need. Um, so they can put comments in their Amazon wish list, kind of saying, this is why Timmy needs this. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then those are the wish lists that I will then go and pair with um, sponsors. That's such a great idea. I mean, this whole concept is so creative and so thoughtful, especially coming <laughs> from parents who get it. You know, it's easy, you know, sometimes for companies just to create something like this, but they don't have a personal connection to it. So it's just got to be so rewarding to be able to see all of those either the Christmas wish lists or just wish lists in general, that those items are getting checked off and families are getting the things that they need. So it's, it's heartwarming. I love it. <laughs> Thanks. And then since you guys have nothing better to do with two young toddlers and this website going on, <laughs> you guys just started a podcast also um, a few months ago called Embracing Autism. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the vision for your podcast and kind of what you hope well, listeners will gain from your stories um, and your guests if you have guests on? Yeah, absolutely. So 
the Embracing Autism podcast also came out of a need that I saw. Um, I basically was on Facebook groups very frequently trying to give people all the tips and resources that I had learned. Um, Because at the beginning of our autism journey, we were pretty clueless and didn't really know what to do. But I am a researcher by trade. Um, It's what I do. So I'm very investigative and I like to get answers. And so I did all the work of finding the answers to as many of these questions as possible. And I thought, you know what, instead of having to go one by one and answering the same questions all over the internet, it would make most sense if I just put all this information together as a resource for parents. So we decided to put the podcast together as that resource. And I specifically wanted my husband to be in the podcast because I also find that the resources available are very um, like mother oriented Mm -hmm. and there aren't Mm -hmm. a lot of father's perspectives. So we decided to do it together to be able to give people the perspective from both a mother, but also a father. And then the point of the podcast itself, it starts, the very first episode starts with just like seeing red flags. And then we go towards like preparing for diagnosis, what to expect on diagnosis day, how to process a diagnosis afterwards. And then we go through all the therapies. So we're basically just trying to hold people's hands through that first process of just getting that diagnosis and kind of feeling like you're, you're going from weathering the storm to embracing autism. That's the theme of season one. And now we're going to be releasing season two pretty soon. And that one's going to be all about senses and sensibilities. That's so fantastic. And I, I love that your husband, Matt is such a huge part of it because you're right. There are uh, most of the podcasts are actually (laughs) like mine led by um, moms. And um, most of the Facebook pages that you find are led by moms. And there are plenty of dads out there who are very involved in um, their child's life, my husband included. He just is maybe camera shy. I don't know. <laughs> He's been on a couple episodes with me, but um, trust me, I had to push him into the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's fantastic. I mean, I wish something like that would have been around when Skyler was diagnosed way, way long ago, um, but it was still so new then. So I'm always so um, moved and inspired by young moms like yourself who, um, you know, are talking about every single aspect of the journey from the day it started to maybe even things that signs, like you said, red flags, things that you noticed before the actual diagnosis to give parents somewhere to go as a central location for resources. And if they have questions, I'm sure they can reach out to you. Do you have a Facebook page for the podcast or for the um, autism wish group or just in general, a personal page? Yeah. So it's, it's all combined into one. Our podcast is by autism wish. So our Facebook is just facebook.com slash autism wish. Okay. And the link to the podcast is there as well. You said, yeah, we post uh, podcast episodes on the, on the page itself as well. Yeah. Well, I will definitely link all those up in the show notes too, but, um, you know, you, you shared a little bit with me too, before about the need to destigmatize autism and learning disabilities. Can you explain a little bit about what you meant by that and and just kind of what your overall perspective is on, on that topic? Yeah. So growing up as somebody with learning disabilities, ADHD, processing disorders, those sorts of things, Um, I, I grew up with having a lot of that kind of misunderstanding of what it is and people kind of judging you and thinking that you're dumb if you're not able to keep up and all, all these sorts of things, um, prior to knowing my diagnosis, because I got a late diagnosis right before college. And so all the way through high school, everything was really challenging and difficult because 
Um, people don't seem to understand when people have learning disabilities or when they have like autism, ADHD, those sorts of things, they tend to just assume the worst. They tend to assume you're incapable. They tend to assume you're dumb. They tend to assume like, if you can't do things the way they can do, then that must mean something is wrong with you or, or you're incapable. And so, um, that actually gave me a lot of perspective with my kids. So as soon as I found out they were diagnosed with autism, I wasn't, I wasn't really thinking of it as kind of like an end of the world type of scenario. I, I started thinking about like, okay, I can relate to some of this. Um, and I wanted to kind of nip it in the bud as soon as they were young in terms of making sure that they had all the resources that they could possibly get, making sure that they were diagnosed as early as possible and getting all the therapies they could get as early as possible so that they could have the best outcome. Um, but it's also about trying to raise them with the ability to, to kind of stand up for themselves as best as possible. Um, I know that that's not possible in all cases, um, but for them, I think I will be able to give them the tools that they need to basically let the world know that just because you have a diagnosis doesn't mean you can't, for example, communicate. Like there's mm -hmm. a big, there's a big stigma out there about autism and communication and and how if you are nonverbal, for example, there's the assumption that you're unintelligent. Um, and I have seen nonverbal autistic individuals who actually were incredibly smart as soon mm -hmm. as you were able to provide them with a different way to communicate, like um, letters on a board where they just mm -hmm. point and spell things out. And it's, it's fascinating because if you just look at them from an outside perspective, it's easy to assume that they're not able to listen and understand and that's something that I tell parents all the time, never assume that your child does not understand what you're saying, even if they're not able to communicate verbally, even if it seems like they're not paying attention, always assume that they know what you're saying, because it's very important that they could understand and you want to make sure that they're hearing what you want them to hear and not mm -hmm. a bunch of negativity. Yeah, I could not um, agree with you more. And I'm living proof. And I talk about it on numerous episodes of, of this show that, you know, my son is nonverbal at 18 and we have gone round and round with all kinds of communication methods. And it finally hit us that we're trying so hard to get him to communicate the way that we do a method that to teach him to talk or to talk for him with assisted, you know, communication, um, facilitated communication mm -hmm. devices and things like that. And instead of meeting him where he was, and so we tried spelling that you mentioned, and um, that has actually shown us so much more than we ever realized was inside of him. The things that he is spelling, exactly. you know, we're asking him to give us the synonym of something and he does it without even hesitation. And it's just mind blowing. And so, you know, our therapist told us the same thing, presume competence always that they're age appropriate understanding. Don't ever feel like you have to bring things down to a childlike level for them to understand mm -hmm. because it's, it's insulting. Um, so I, I mean, you're never too late to learn these things. I'm just glad that we did finally see it and we know now what he's capable of. It also hurts him in a way because now he doesn't get away with all that he used to, because we assumed he was behaving like a, you know, four-year-old because that's kind of what his mannerisms, you know, told us. And now I know how smart he is and he's very manipulative when he wants to be. <laughs> so he doesn't get away with all that stuff. Um, you know, I, I hear from a lot of parents about their hesitation sometimes to 
take their children, no matter the age, to a physician to get the diagnosis of autism mm -hmm. or any other disability for fear of the label defining them in, in some way. Um, so did it help you ultimately to get a diagnosis to better understand what you're experiencing, even though it came late? I mean, was mm -hmm. receiving a diagnosis important to you to help you just kind mm -hmm. of process like, that's exactly why, you know, I was yeah. doing these things or whatever, or would you have been able to go on with your life without it? Honestly, I am a huge advocate for diagnosing as early as possible because growing up without the diagnosis, I, I, all I could you know, dwindle it down to is, oh, okay, I must be dumb then. Like, there's nothing to explain this. There's no, no reason as to why I should not be able to keep up with my peers. Why I shouldn't understand what some, what someone is telling to me the first time they say it, there's no reason I shouldn't be able to process this as quickly as everyone else. So then I must just be dumb. So to me, it was actually really, really hard growing up, up prior to the diagnosis, because I just had low self-esteem and I just assumed the worst. And mm -hmm. so when I finally got the diagnosis, there's two, two positive things that came out of that. One is I finally saw something that made everything make sense. I was like, oh my gosh, this is so eye-opening. So it's not me. There's like, it's not that there's something wrong with me. It's just that I think differently and I haven't been accommodated. So that changed my mindset completely. And as soon as I got that diagnosis, it's like, I didn't really care anymore. I was like, okay, I'm good with that. Like I, now I understand. So now it makes sense. So now I'm okay with it. Um, and then the other thing was it opens up for the possibility of accommodations. And when I was in high school and middle school, I struggled in some of my classes to be able to get like good grades. I always got A's and B's, but those A's and B's took me so much work. I would literally mm -hmm. cry over homework. I would have tutors for everything all day, every day. It was very hard. Um, and then once I hit college, because I had the diagnosis, I had the, the accommodations and the accommodations made a huge difference. I was able to go all the way through a master's and get a 4.0 GPA. And I could not have done that without the accommodations. So I am a huge advocate for the earlier you can get a diagnosis, the better. Well, I can only imagine too, just having that personal experience that when your daughter's um, begin going to school that you're going to be the, the loudest person at the IEP meetings or whatever, you know, making sure that there is nothing that is overlooked or over to, you know, that you don't have to overturn to get your daughters, whatever they need to help, you know, give them the best opportunity in school. Right. It's actually funny that you said that because I actually created something that I call the student introduction portfolio. Um, and it's like a seven page PDF. And I put together a resource basically for parents who are in my situation to bring to teachers on the first day of class. And this portfolio is basically um, a document that you can put down your kids' likes and dislikes, their interests, a little bit about them to humanize them. You can put their oversensitivities, their undersensitivities, parent contact information, all that sort of stuff. Um, and so I, I created that for this very reason because I know there's IEPs and IFSPs, but I think that there was something needed to kind of humanize that so that mm -hmm. people don't just see, oh, this is a kid with a diagnosis. It's like, no, this is also a kid who likes to play soccer, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's frustrating because um, while there are so many good special education teachers and aides and just all of that stuff within school systems, it still seems like 
maybe it is the human humanization factor of it too, but it just seems like the parents aren't consulted enough. We are the experts about our children. We are the ones who know every single mannerism, what it means, what upsets them, what their triggers are, you know, what makes them happy, all of that. And it's, unless you show up with that information, like you put together, it's overlooked. And the parents are the last person to ask about a meltdown or something. We only find out about it after the fact, like your child was upset. Your child was whatever today. And I wish they would have just called me the minute, you know, something was happening. And I could have probably either told them exactly what was going wrong. once they described the situation within seconds, or I'd like to stop by and just observe. And I could probably tell them like, you know what? The chair is on this side of the room. If you move it over there, I guarantee you this will never happen again. Whatever this scenario is, he doesn't like the chair there. He, he prefers it over here. And the little silly quirks like that could make a, a good year from a bad year for them in school. Right. And I, I think that unfortunately the problem is there's just not enough awareness. And I mean, I get the difficulty and the challenge because um, this is actually one of the things I don't really like about special needs schools is that they tend to put um, everybody in the same class when everybody uh-huh. doesn't necessarily have the same needs and everybody is kind of in a different place, but they give them kind of like a blanket treatment. And I think that that's one of the problems and one of the challenges with the public school systems. I personally, um, I'm a bit of a mama bear. So I personally am opting to homeschool my kids because I'm a little neurotic and want to kind of just make sure they do have everything that they need. Mm -hmm. Um, But I can totally see why that is a challenge in the public school system, because that's one of the reasons I chose to homeschool. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's one of the areas that I would love to branch into next is, um, you know, just speaking to even college, um, you know, before they graduate college students who are going into special education or therapy or anything like that and give them a parent's perspective and give them some things to think about, because you're right. I mean, curriculum in any subject is a cookie cutter curriculum. It is what it is. I mean, they're probably given you know, two weeks on autism in their special education, you know, curriculum and in their program. And Mm -hmm. every child with autism is different. There is not, you know, one, a hundred percent mirrored child to another one on the spectrum. So if you're teaching everyone in a classroom, in a special education classroom, the exact same way, you're managing behaviors the same way you're, you know, setting this classroom up the same way. There's just so much that can be missed And they just don't know. They don't know to ask those questions. They don't know to, you know, just modify things for some kids and other kids don't need it. I don't know. It's just, it's such a big problem. And I don't know where else to begin to start solving it other than starting where they, before they even begin their career and talking to them before they graduate. Right. So, I mean, I think that one of the things that they probably should do is get involved in the schools prior to all this and ask parents. So, so what I, what I do as a career, um, aside from this, I'm called a user experience researcher. So, so what I do as my job is I interview people about their experiences with things. And the goal of my job is try to improve those experiences. And I inform those improvements on what they're telling me. So there needs to be something like that 
for this, you know, for the school system. There needs to be some sort of like research done where they go out and interview the parents and interview the students who can be interviewed. And they go and see what are the actual pain points and what are things that they would like to see. And then you can make recommendations and changes based off of that. Um, but something small that could be done, I think, is the reason I created that student introduction portfolio is because right now there's there's this gap. And I think, you know, if I can make it, why can't the school system make it? I think okay. it would make sense for these teachers to have a student introduction portfolio packet to send home with all the parents before the first day of school and say, hey, can you fill this out about your kid? And I will make sure to read it and understand your kid's specific background and their specific needs. So if your kid is having some sort of issue, they pull up the man, they pull up the portfolio and they're like, oh, okay, this kid doesn't like the chairs on that side of the room. That's probably Mm -hmm. what's causing it. So I think that line of communication needs to be kind of opened up a little more. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, and it, it, people who choose that as their career um, in getting into special education are a very, very special person. I mean, that's a big job. I know I couldn't do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I know that they choose that career choice with a lot of thought and, um, you know, for a reason. And so I would think they would be open to learning about each of their students like they're their own kids. And it would just make for a better year for everyone. But, you know, sadly, just sometimes they, they're overwhelmed and they have too many kids in their class and whatever the excuses are, and it just doesn't happen. So, you know, hopefully we can continue to spread the word <laughs> and every parent can do the same and make those suggestions to use something like what you've created and, you know, create a movement really to get, to get it changed. Um, Absolutely. Well, in talking about kids and um, what makes them happy, I would love to know what makes your adorable little girls, um, happy and joyful and, um, what makes them smile? (laughs) So my oldest one, so she's the one that loves reading. So she's super into books and right now she's really into numbers and counting. So one of her favorite things right now is number blocks. So she's going around and, um, each of the number blocks has a color associated Mm -hmm. with it. So whenever we're wearing a colored shirt, um, so I'm wearing white today, she's like, mommy, you're number 10. (laughs) So she's like associating the colors with the characters on the show. And then (laughs) my youngest one, she's really rambunctious. She's one of the autistic types that um, are really motion seeking and climbing and jumping and spinning that type. So right now, the thing that's making her really happy is we got one of those um, swings, the little teardrop sensory swings. And Mm -hmm. she has been going crazy with that. So every morning she runs straight to it and you'll just see her spinning like crazy. I I don't know how she doesn't get sick, honestly, but she she never does. It's great. You have found something that um, meets that need for her, you know, that whether it's pressure or to be spinning or whatever, that you figure that out so quickly. Oh yeah. And she's two. So that's, that's awesome. It it actually took a lot of OT because uh, she had self-injurious behavior before and we figured out through the OT that it was all this sensory seeking behavior that she needed. So we replaced it with these um, gizmos and gadgets and now she doesn't do it anymore because she has those outlets. Smart, smart. (laughs) I wish I could figure out how to replace Skylar's hitting of his own leg. He just slaps his it's always his right leg and he just open hand slaps his, the top of his thigh over and over and over. And the harder he hits and the louder it is, the bigger he smiles. And I'm like, I mean, obviously it's meeting a need for him, but 
it's it's a very painful <laughs> thing to observe and it's like ouch and when he smacks me it definitely hurts so I don't know how he can take it but oh my goodness I know yeah. it's hard to replace that thing <laughs> else maybe some compression um, pants or something <laughs> I know I I know I swear we we have more weighted blankets around this house than any other regular blankets um it's nuts um well you know would there be anything I know you've been at this a few years with your little girls but um any suggestions or advice that you would want to share with parents who are getting into their autism journey. I know your podcast is a great resource, um, breaking down everything that they need to know, but, um, just from, I guess, like a mother's perspective and maybe trusting your gut, just anything that you would tell parents that are listening. Yeah. So I think that one of, one of the things that, um, I kind of learned from this is to never put limitations on your child. So, I basically um, read a lot online of all these parents of things that they were being told by their doctors. Luckily, my doctors didn't do this, but a lot of people's doctors, they tell them like, okay, your child is autistic and this is what it is. And this is where where they're going to be basically for the rest of their life. I'm sorry. Here's a lollipop, move on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, I I basically am like, do, do not fall for that. Even, even if your doctor does say that, like, yeah, they have an MD, but that doesn't mean that they know the future. Like they're not psychic. So always assume that your child is capable of improving. And even though that improvement or that, that trailblazing might be at a slower rate, it might be a different path. It might be, you know, the scenic route you can still see improvements over time and just give your kid the hope that they need to continue to grow and develop and don't lose hope in that. Because for example, if they're not speaking, it doesn't mean they won't communicate. They might communicate. It just might not be verbally. So just always hold on to hope and always continue to try to push your child gently to continue to grow as a person, just as you would a neurotypical child. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. I mean, I could not agree more. And I think also not getting frustrated. It's very easy as a parent, whether it is communicating or it's toilet training or it's anything else that they're not meeting the quote unquote age appropriate milestones to check things off. It's frustrating and you just want them so badly to catch up to their peers and, you know, not to have so many hardships lumped on them all at once, um, but to just remain cool because they can sense it. They know when you're frustrated. I've talked to so many autistic adults who type to communicate. Um, and they have said, just because I can't talk with words doesn't mean that I, I don't still want to please you. And I don't want to meet your expectations. And I can see in your face when you're, you know, seemingly disappointed or frustrated because I can't speak or because I, you know, wasn't able to do something like everyone else, my age, Um, but I'm really trying, I'm trying really hard. It's just, my body's not cooperating with me. Um, and that's heartbreaking to, to think that just a facial expression you can make can really deter your kids from, you know, feeling proud of themselves for the little bit that they did, you know, achieve or change. So, um, I agree with you you so much. I, and I can, t- I can actually relate to some of that aspect. This, this is one of the reasons why the physician said that I likely have BAP. Um, but I have had language processing um, issues growing up. And one of the things that I can kind of describe it as is 
it kind of feels like, um, it kind of feels like you're drowning sometimes because you're trying to express something and the thought is in your head, but you cannot get that signal to come out of your mouth and you're thinking it and you're frustrated and you're getting anxious because you're like, I know what I want to say. It's right here. It's on the tip of my tongue. Why can't I get it to come out? And then the hard part about that is you have your peers standing there judging you, kind of looking at you like, what is going on? Uh, and you kind of feel like, you know, overwhelmed because you feel like, great, now everyone thinks I'm dumb. Great, nobody mm-hmm. understands me. Like it gets really frustrating. So I, I can totally understand that. And I feel like we need to just have more empathy and accommodate and give people more time to express themselves so they don't have to feel like they're drowning. Yeah. And patience. (laughs) And I am, you know, I am always working on that. That is definitely not my strong suit. And, um, Skylar's not patient either. So you put the two of us together and it's kind of chaotic (laughs) sometimes, but, um, it's really hard. It's really hard to meet them where they are and go at their pace, but you have to, you don't have a choice. And so, you know, just that's one, been one of the biggest lessons I've learned throughout his 18 years is just to be patient. He will get there on his own time. All you can do is support them along the way and you know, encourage them and give all kinds of praise because that'll just motivate them to speed it up. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so He'll get, oh my he'll get there. <laughs> I know he will. And I mean, there's, that's the thing too, is I'm constantly saying to people that they don't grow out of their disability, whatever it oh is at gosh, 18, yes. people think that. And I, I mean, it's, it's kind of a funny thing to say and, uh, but it's so common. It's because services end at 21, 22 in most States, traditional services. And I don't know why that magic number was just kind of put on the disabled that at that, at that 21, yeah. 22 age that they're magically cured or whatever the ailment is, is no longer an issue. And they can go and live a, a life that's quote unquote normal, get a job, live on their own, be independent, all of that. And it's just crazy because you only go into a whole nother level of things that your child or young adult might need your assistance with um, when it comes to independence and things. So it's just a different journey when they become adults, but it just doesn't go away. So just, it's annoying you know, when what, people think that. What, what's frustrating about that too, is like um, with autistic individuals and neurodiverse in, individuals who may appear to be less disabled than others, there tends to be that issue of like, because you have learned to self-accommodate and because mm-hmm. you have learned to go through life and like, for example, I have um, executive dysfunction. And so therefore I have to put all sorts of items on a to-do list with reminders and all sorts of gizmos and gadgets to keep me on track. And because of that, the outside world thinks, oh, you're, you're totally capable of doing that without, without your gizmos and gadgets, but you take that away and I suddenly can't do it. And I miss times and I get confused and all this stuff. So I feel like one of the problems is that once they hit that 18 year mark, they're like, oh, you're good to go. You, or, or when they're self-accommodating, oh, you're good to go. And they don't see that behind that, that person is still stressed. That person is still anxious. That person is still trying to figure things out and they can't process what you're saying. Cause they're too busy trying to process what they're trying to do. So mm-hmm. I think that there still needs to be a lot of like understanding and empathy of that too. Yep. 
I agree so much with that. I absolutely love your mission and what you and your husband, Matt, are doing with Autism Wish. I will, of course, link up your webpage so that people can go out there and donate or generate their own wish, wish uh, grant <laughs> a wish list for a family, um, and also your podcast, Embracing Autism. Thank you for taking the time to do that and put that together and everything else that you're doing. Um, I appreciate it. And I'm sure so many other families will appreciate your hard work too. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime, anytime. Um, well, thank you, Leah. All right. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Living the Sky Life and we'll tune in for the next episode coming soon. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the Living the Sky Life podcast within Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Play so you'll receive alerts when new episodes are released. Subscribing is the best way to ensure you don't miss a single episode. If you like what you hear, be sure to select the five-star rating, provide feedback, and share Living the Sky Life with others. Thanks again for listening.